I am very close to finishing school, so I've been in school for almost four years. Um, I walked in my graduation, not Saturday, but the previous Saturday, but there was an asterisk by my name that said, he's not really graduating. He's just here. We're not, we're not sure why. So they just, it's, it's, a, it's a system that's a little goofy. There's about half of us that are this way. Um, they graduate kind of in the same time everybody else does, but their school year starts in September and finishes in August. So there's a whole bunch of us that had like one term left. I have one term left. Part of this term is uh, uh, a trip to Israel where I use um, Jerusalem University to learn some stuff in context there in Israel. So I'm leaving Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, and we'll be gone for a couple of weeks to that. Uh, So just giving you a heads up on that, that's what's happening. I'm almost done, and I want to say this, I really appreciate you guys giving me the freedom to do this. It's been super healthy. And I've been gone, I'll leave for a couple weeks at a time to go up to uh, Portland and take the classes and all that kind of stuff. Really good for me. Um, I was easily kind of, uh, what would I say? If I talked to somebody that was really good on a subject, I'd be like, man, they're right. And then I talked to somebody else that was really good. No, that's right. And it would kind of be bouncing back and forth. So this past four years has been real good because it's kind of given me like, here's where I stand on these things. And, and not arrogantly, but just knowing this is where I stand. And they actually force you to do that. You have to write out like, here's where I stand. And then they attack you. And it's really fun. So <laughs> why do you believe that? So it's been real healthy. And I just appreciate so much you guys giving me the opportunity to do that. Um, today is... Mother's Day, and the message is suffering. suffering. So I'm going to make you suffer a little bit more. Would you stand up and turn to 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing or working in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. So Father, give us wisdom, I pray. Help us to... Walk out well this life that's been entrusted to us. Help us to integrate with reality what is really happening in our world. Clear up misconceptions. Guide us well, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So the way I'm going to try to tackle this today is I'm going to give you a test. And the topic is... Suffering. Isn't that like a double negative? Like tests are suffering in themselves, and the top is going to be suffering. So it's a real brutal thing. As I was thinking through tests, I remembered a test that I took about eight years ago, and it was on um, improving my driving skills. Perhaps you've taken those classes as well. So I was in those classes, and you had to take a test. And one of the questions they asked, I actually wrote it down. It was so unreal. The question was this. When you're driving... Have you ever wished or verbalized harm on another driver? I'm just like, what in the world? Where do these people drive? The tundra? I mean, come on. 
My two-year-old son, Myron, verbalizes harm. Get out of the way! I need my milk bottle! Press the big one! You wrote anchor! <laughs> it's just so crazy. So I'm going to give you some like that that make you be like, what? There might be some questions like that. And I'd ask you that when I ask the question for you to really answer, not out loud, you don't have to, you can if you want to, but really answer, here's where I stand. This is what I think on that question. Because most likely I'm going to probe you and make you a little bit mad at me today. But I think suffering is such a big topic that sometimes we need to be probed and pushed a little bit. So answer the question in your mind. This is what I would say. You don't say it out loud. You can if you want. And then just listen to my side and fight back if you want to. Not literally, but, you know, email me, whatever. I'm open to it. But I think it's very important to get this right or we do something to God that's not good, okay? So question number one is this. And I'm going to give you a chance to actually answer it in your mind. I'm going to pause. I'll give a long, almost awkward pause, in fact because it's that important. Question number one, is suffering part of God's plan? True or false? Is that awkward enough? (laughs) Okay, here's me. This is where I stand. I think in the Bible, there are four chapters that are God's plan. Those four chapters are Genesis, one and two, and Revelation 21 and 22. You want God's plan, it's those. So Genesis 1 and 2 is the beginning, and it's God saying over and over what? It's good. It's a good place. I created a good space for man and woman to dwell together, to enjoy marriage, and then it ends this way. It actually, those two chapters end this way. It says that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. You know what that means? It means you could eat anything in the garden and not gain weight. I guarantee it. That's what it meant. The paleo diet works. So they are just unashamed. They're just like a brilliant place. Awesome. All right? That's the beginning. And then we go to the end of the story. Here's what we get, and I'll read it for you. It's Revelation 21, 4. This is God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's a tear for? Suffering. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The end of the goal is what? Is there suffering there? No. In fact, that verse makes it really clear. It goes through kind of every way you can get pain. No, 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 no pain. Beginning, really good, unity, beauty, incredible, end, really good, beauty, no pain, awesome. So you got to ask, What in the world happened in the middle, right? What what happened right here? Because there's a lot of pain. Cheating spouses, lots of pain. Cancer that kills moms too early, lots of pain. Kids that are abused, lots of pain. Orphanages that overflow, 
lots of pain. Widows that are neglected, lots of pain. Brothers that die. Parents that are so zombied out by drugs that their kids are neglected in a way that you cannot even believe. Lots of pain. From Revelation, or from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, it's like, what happened, right? It's 1,185 chapters. I counted them for you. Now I Googled it. How many chapters are there? Oh, thank you. That's the majority of the book. The majority of the book is this like, what in the world happened? It's as if in Genesis 3, God's beautiful symphony, that record skips. And from that point on, the music is out of tune. That's what seems to happen. That God had this great plan. I'm going to be with you. You're going to have a right relationship with me. You're going to have a right relationship with creation. You're going to have a right relationship in your family. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to rule. You're going to have dominion of this place. That sounds like a really good plan, but then it gets broken by a poor choice. And from that point on, the record just doesn't play right. The tune is wrong. So here's my answer to question number one. Is suffering a part of God's plan? False. No, God's plan. Genesis 1 and 2. Now God's new goal, Revelation 21 and 22. So I put it like this. I got to massage it, and I realize I, hopefully I will, that God does not require pain. Will God use it? Oh, sure. But God does not require it. It wasn't required. It wasn't like, Matt, in order for me to get you to where you need to be, I need to just crush you and put you through lots of pain. No. No, God had a plan. Record skipped. So false, number one. Number two. All right, that's fine, Matt. So Genesis 3, there's sin, right? That's what happens. So you've got sin as the common denominator between all these chapters. So is it this then? Is suffering God punishing me for my sin? Answer that in your own mind. Is suffering God punishing you for your sin, true or false? This one requires some massage because there is self-inflicted suffering. I mean, let's just be honest. Some people do stupid things and they suffer. Have you ever Googled the Darwin Awards? Do it, but just not now. It's hilarious. It's people doing stupid things and then reaping the results of their stupidity, right? Most often, that begins by this. It's a guy saying, dude, I got an idea. Hold my beer. Okay, just call 911 right then. All right, we're going to the emergency room. Hold, that's what's going to happen. So sometimes you just got to say, you know what? You're, you earned that. And the Bible's super honest about that. So here's what the Bible says. It's Moses, Numbers 32:23, and he says this, be sure your sins will find you out. Not God getting you. You did that action. You're receiving the consequences. Jeremiah puts it like this, Jeremiah 2.19. Your own backsliding will reprove you. The actions of your life, what you're doing right now, it's just going to come back and whack you. Proverbs puts it like this, Proverbs 6.32. The man that commits adultery is not wise. He destroys his own soul. Is that God getting him? No. He hurts himself. How much pain 
happens in our world, how much suffering can be directly attributed to men and women not walking out Genesis 2 well. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The majority of counseling that I do is right there. Men and women not walking out their relationship well, at least 50%, maybe 75. The other 25% is almost always kids. So fascinating. Those are the two that work people. So you got to massage it, all right? So is God punishing me for sin? Well, first of all, you got to know, guess what? Your own sin will do its own job on you. So then you got to answer that question. And I think the best way to answer it is by looking at Job. Remember we talked about him last week. Job loses everything. Everything, his 10 kids die. And then his wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. And Job, he responds this way. He says this, hey, naked I came out of the womb, naked I'm going to leave this world. But then he says this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's where I'm going to start poking you. Is Job right there? Is Job right in saying the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Remember, we read the story, and you're supposed to read the story like it's been written. God authorized it to be written that way. You're supposed to read it, and you get a hint, a glimpse behind the curtain, right? Because there's another character involved. Did God steal the herds and the sheep and the flocks of Job? No. Did God kill his 10 kids? Well, we get a glimpse behind the scene, and minimally you have to do this. Minimally you have to say, Job, it's more complicated than that. That's the minimum, because we get the behind the story. In fact, when God answers Job, read chapters 28, or 38, 39, 40, here's what God says. Job, it's more complicated than that. Where were you when I made the stars? Where were you when the Leviathan did his thing? Where were you? Do you understand the universe and the complexity of this thing? Job, you don't. So you're going to trust me. So minimally, you have to say this. Job, it's more complicated than that. Some people go as far as to say, no, it was Satan. Morally free creatures making decisions that hurt each other. So you got to figure out where you stand on that. That's how that begins. And then from there, here's where it goes. You have Job with his three buddies, and another guy joins later. And what do they say, really, what's the main message they give to Job throughout the middle section of that book? You sinned and you're suffering, right? That's the entire message. Bro, you did something. We know the righteous get rewarded, and we know sinners get punished. You're being punished, therefore you sinned. And what's Job's answer over and over and over again? I don't have a secret sin. I didn't secretly commit adultery on my wife. I'm not looking at porn at home. I didn't lie on my IRS charge. I I didn't do that. That's his answer over and over. And at the end, God says to the friends, you were wrong, Job is right. And we know that from the beginning of the book because God points out Job as the best he has on earth. Okay? So Job would say, oh, no, right? If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, what happened to your sins? Let me read it for you. It's the book of Isaiah, 
It's Isaiah 53. And it says this. Listen very carefully. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Did you hear that verse right there? You know what that just said? Man, Jesus got trashed. We looked at him and said, well, you must have done something wrong because God's punishing you. We did Job. That's what verse 4 says. We did Job. But then it answers. But, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. For we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What happened to your sins? They're put on Jesus, right? That's what this text just says. That's what the New Testament teaches. Your sins were put on Jesus on the cross. So if you're a believer, what happened to your sins? Who got punished for your sins? Jesus. All right? So imagine the classic courtroom where Jesus is our intercessor and Satan comes up there and he's attacking us. Okay, let's imagine that for a second. So Satan is like, hey, yesterday Matt gossiped. God, you are a just God. And the wage of sin is death. Matt must be smitten. Smite him. Right? God's a just God. He should smite me. Jesus, if you would, says this. It's right. Matt did gossip. You're right. The wages of sin is death. You're right. He must be punished. But Father, I paid for that sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. And it would be unjust for you to get paid twice for the same sin. And God the Father says, right, paid in full, case dismissed. If you're a believer, is suffering God punishing you for sins? No. No. Your sins were placed on Jesus. He took the punishment you and I deserved. No. False. False. Question number three. All right, fine. I get that. Okay, Jesus paid it. All right, great. I understand repercussions. My own sin will get me. It's not God getting me. Okay, great. All right. But, but God uses suffering to teach me a lesson though, right? He uses it to teach me something. So let me ask you that. Does God use suffering to teach you a lesson? True or false? So in 12 years of pastoral care, I've walked with people that are going through, and even now going through, intense suffering. The last one was a lady who lost her baby. And she said this to me, God must be teaching me a lesson. And I'll tell you what happened in my heart right in that moment. It sank. God must be teaching me a lesson. And there's a theological thought process that gets you there. So theologians, they give what's called a parent purpose. And it's that, hey, God's ways are higher than ours. He's way up there. And so we may not understand everything that God's doing, but the death of a baby, it is for some kind of apparent purpose. And we have to trust God in that apparent purpose. So it's called the parent purpose. 
And I've studied it and read it and looked at it and read the books. And I'll tell you, I don't agree with it. Where do you stand? I'll give you where I stand. Here's a guy that went through it. His name is Dr. Ben Witherington. He's the Amos Professor of New Testament Studies at Ashbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He says this, and he wrote this two weeks after his daughter died suddenly from a pulmonary embolism. So he knows. He wrote this, and I say, quote, The first point that was immediately confirmed in my heart was theological. God did not do this to my baby. God is not the author of evil. God does not terminate sweet children's lives with pulmonary embolisms. Pulmonary embolisms are a result of human fallenness, the record skips, and the bent nature of this world, it's off tune. I 100% agree with Dr. Ben. So I say, false, false. Question number four. Last question. Do all things happen for a reason? True or false? Do all things happen for a reason? True or false? When I started this message, and I start a week in advance, so I started it not this Friday, but last Friday. I was outlining it. I get about 75% done. I just Googled that phrase. All things happen for a reason. I like doing that sometimes. Up popped this story that was about the NFL draft the night before. It was about a guy named Laramie Tunsil. Anybody hear about Laramie Tunsil? Okay. Laramie Tunsil, phenomenal athlete. Unbelievable. I mean, just gifted. Guy's got it going on. He's projected to go at least top five. Some people had him as high as number two, some as number one. I mean, just a phenomenal athlete. So he's projected to go high minutes before the draft. On his Twitter account, there's published this picture of him in a gas mask smoking pot. Yeah, oh, I was right. So all of a sudden, instead of him being taken one, two, three, four, or five, he tumbles out of the top 10, and he's selected number 13. And analysts say, in that one post on Twitter, right at the right time, he lost $16 million. Ah. <laughs> so he's interviewed right after the draft, and they ask him this question. Here's what he answers, and I'm quoting. Quote, man, it is a crazy world, and all things happen for a reason, end quote. Now, Part of me just says, dude, that guy is mature. Because if that's me in that situation, and I just lost $16 million, I'm not going to reply like that. I'm going to be like, why did this happen? Who was it? Where are they at? Right? I'm going to be much more like that, especially if I was as big and strong as him. So it's very mature on his side. But I thought, wow, really? What we mean when we say that all things happen for a reason, here's what we mean by it. We're saying, hey, this is part of God's plan. I say, really? Part of God's plan was minutes before the NFL draft for your Twitter account to be hacked into 
and for someone to get a picture of you smoking pot and for that picture to be put on your Twitter account so that you lose out on 16 million bucks and you got a bad name, that was God's plan? Man, I don't know what kind of God you serve. I don't know what kind of God that is. I don't know. I don't know about that. The root of it, the root of that phrase, guess what verse it comes from? Romans 8, 28, right? And it says this, for we know that all things are working together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Is that the same as saying all things happen for a reason? I say absolutely not. They are categorically different things, okay? So I say all things happen for a reason. I say false. I know some of you right now are sitting with your arms crossed just saying, oh, all that education, you're going south, man. <laughs> I get it. Okay. I know you might even be mad at me. I want to help you. And here's how. If we're saying that everything is happening according to God's plan, what if you have a Bible verse where God says, no, it didn't? Then you've got to say, false statement. I'll show you one. Turn with me if you would to Jeremiah 32, verse 33. Listen to this carefully. Jeremiah 32, 33. They have turned to me their backs and not their face. Does not take a theologian to figure out what they were doing to God, right? It's a polite way of saying what they were doing. You have turned to me your backs and not your face. And though I have taught them persistently, thousand years of teaching them. They have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in a house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Child sacrifice. Listen to this now. Though... I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. What did God just say right there? Not part of my plan. You guys building the place to sacrifice your kids? Not part of my plan. I did not command that. In fact, God goes even further. The thing never entered my mind. I couldn't believe it. You could almost say that. That's what God's saying. See, if you say all things happen for a reason, then guess what you have to say? The 52 million babies that America has slaughtered since 1972, part of God's plan. The child that gets molested, part of God's plan. I categorically say false. Categorically say that. Matt, I'm so confused now. <laughs> I don't get it. Doesn't the New Testament say, like, suffering is good? Doesn't it say that? Doesn't Romans 5, 3 through 5 say this, that Paul says, man, I rejoiced when I suffered because I knew suffering produced endurance and endurance produced character and character produced hope and hope produced this love of God that was shed abroad in me by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the New Testament does say that. <laughs> Doesn't James say 
James 1, 2 through 4, doesn't he say, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, when it's hard because the trying of your faith produces patience. And patience, what it's going to do for you is it's going to make you complete and entire, lacking nothing. Doesn't the Bible say that? It really does. Totally. I'm confused then. Our text that I started out with, verse 17, this light affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's right in the one I read. So I'm confused. Remember this when you read the Bible. The authors of the Bible were Old Testament scholars. They're not coming up with like new stuff. Yes, they're inspired by God's Spirit, but they realize we are grafted into this long thing that God's been doing since Genesis 1. And so they read their Bibles. And when they read their Bibles, they saw something. Paul did. James did. They saw something, and it caused them to view life through that lens, okay? So I'm going to show it to you because I realize there's some people that are pushing back on me right now in these questions. So I'm going to try to explain to you throughout the whole Bible what God's doing. And when you get it, it's brilliant, okay? So look at this. Flip back with me, if you would, to Genesis 50, 20. Genesis 50, 20, this is what it says. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's the story? Joseph, what happened to Joseph? Ten brothers trashed him, sold him into slavery. He is then sold from these guys to Potiphar, works his tail off, does everything right, best dude. Wife falls in love with him, wants him to sleep with her. He rejects her righteously. I cannot do this to my God, and I cannot do this to my master. So then she falsely accuses him of rape. He goes into prison, rots there. Two decades of this, probably from the time he was 17 till he was 37. And then what happens? Prime minister. So what does Joseph say at the end of his life? Hey, you guys meant it for evil. You're evil. What you did was evil. But God, God did something else with it. Brilliant and beautiful. Right? So next one, Deuteronomy 23. So this is the big middle section. What's God doing in this big middle section? This is what he's doing. Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. But Yahweh your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh your God loved you. Verse always reminds me of Romans 8, 28. You know the story? Balaam, hired by these bad kings, put a hex on Israel, cursed them. Okay, goes up on the mountain, wants to curse them. What happens to the words he says? They're blessing instead. The very instrument that was supposed to curse them, God turns that instrument of cursing into one of blessing. Sounds a lot like Joseph. Hmm. Maybe there's a pattern. Esther, Esther 9. Esther 9, verse 20. I'll explain the story of Esther in a second. 
And Mordecai, it's her uncle, recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Story of Esther, really bad dude named Haman. He wants to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Instead, what happens? Esther is raised up, used brilliantly by God, and this nightmare of a situation becomes for them this awesome holiday. If you've ever been around Jewish people and seen their holidays that they celebrate, this one called Purim is their most joyous festival fun ever. God took the nightmare of Haman and turns it into this brilliant holiday that they even celebrate to this day. Boy, that sounds like Joseph. Sounds like Balaam. Hmm, interesting. Psalms. Psalm 30, verse 11. Back when he says, hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. Verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Not mourning like good morning, but mourning like weeping. You have, clothed me, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. What did, what did God do there? Took a bad thing, mourning, and he turned it into dancing. Psalm 126. Verse 5, those who sow in tears, what are tears? Suffering. They're sowing them, shall reap with shouts of joy. You're sowing with suffering your tear, and what's being produced? Shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Ah, sounds a lot like Joseph, a lot like Balaam, a lot like Esther, a lot like Psalm 30. All right, I have a whole bunch more, but for Mother's Day, I actually cut out a bunch. But Isaiah, got to do Isaiah. Isaiah 61. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. What are ruins? Something that was good that's been broken. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of Yahweh. And they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. What's the theme? Bad things turned into beautiful, brilliant things. Ashes become beautiful. Mourning becomes praise, right? Shame becomes a double portion. Change. One more, and it's Jesus. 
Listen to what Jesus says. It's John chapter 16. Verse 20. Truly, truly. Whenever you see the double truly, it's pay attention. Truly, truly. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Here's the key. But your sorrow will turn into joy. What turns into joy? The thing that was sorrowful, that thing, the sorrow becomes joy, right? That's what Jesus is saying. I have that underlined. Super key. The very thing that sorrowed you now becomes the things that joys you. And here's his analogy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. The analogy is childbirth. This baby that caused you unbelievable torment then becomes this thing that brings you great joy. Like I can remember 15 years ago holding my firstborn, Carissa Jaden Heverly, fresh out of the oven, brand new, I remember just in a moment, like just instantly, I completely forgot about all my pain. Just gone. <laughs> None. <sighs> Truly, though, moms, do you know this? When you breastfeed your baby, there's this hormone called oxytocin that's released. And it does two things. It bonds you with that child. But secondly, it does this. It helps you forget the pain. Like if it was not for oxytocin, women would have one baby and then they're done. And that baby would be called like, ah, ouch. That'd be it. Come here, ouch. Ah, right? That'd be it. So God has this brilliant thing that the very thing that brought you pain becomes the thing that brings you joy. Doesn't that sound like Joseph? Doesn't that sound like Balaam? Doesn't that sound a lot like Esther? and the psalmist, and Isaiah, and I'm only hitting on some of them. See, there's a theme when when Paul writes 2 Thessalonians 4.17, that these light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're doing something. They're actually, he uses the word, working for me. He's grafting himself into this long chain of history that he sees God always doing this. Wait a second, Matt. Hold on. I just ain't buying this. Ain't buying this whole suffering thing. And didn't God use Babylon to punish his people? He did it to them. Yeah, he did. Well, what about that? Doesn't fit your model. God will, at times, use evil to punish evil. So when God took Babylon and brought them down to punish Israel, was Israel a godly nation or an evil nation? We read about them in Jeremiah 32. What were they doing? They were sacrificing their kids, just like the Canaanites that God had driven out before them. And God says, no more. And God said, I have been persistently begging you to stop, sending prophet after prophet, person after person, and you refuse. And then finally just God says, that's it. No more. I'm going to use evil now to punish evil. This has to stop. In fact, I think the whole book of Revelation is that. It's God saying, I'm going to bring evil and it's going to punish evil. So you have this whore called Babylon 
And in chapters 17 and 18, the kings that she was in bed with rise up and destroy her. It's evil destroying evil. So God will at times use evil to punish evil. So here's how I see suffering. I see God's plan as Genesis 1 and 2. Brilliant and beautiful. That humans live in this awesome symphony with one another. With creation. Naming creation. Caring for, tending the garden. Expanding dominion and rule. Good. Beautiful. In a right relationship with their dad, Heavenly Father. That he comes and walks with them in the cool of the evening. But then Adam and Eve, because of a poor choice, they kick the record and it skips and it goes off tune. And then you have in the middle section, the biggest part, if you would, 1,185 chapters, God does his greatest work. It's all the things that I've been pointing at. What is God's greatest work? There's a term for it. It's called redemption. I'll redeem it. I'll redeem your tears. I'll redeem your suffering. I'll redeem it. I will use it for something brilliant and incredible. I'll redeem it if you'll let me. That's the middle section of the Bible. So here's how I put it. If you're a theologian, here's how I put it. God wills goodness. That God is a good God. Plain and simple. God wills goodness and will bring it to pass despite a moral creature's rebellion, and he will order his goodness that even evil, which he does not cause, will become an occasion of his grace. That's the theological way I put it. Here's the simple way I put it. Judo theology. That God takes the movement of evil and he uses their momentum against them to accomplish his good work. Judo theology. So that's what I believe. I got one more objection then. One more. Why doesn't God just get rid of all evil and suffering now? Why doesn't he stop it? Good question. Let me ask you this. If God did get rid of all evil and suffering, what would happen to you? Have you ever gossiped about somebody? And that gossip caused that person to suffer? You ever lied about somebody and your lie ends up really hurting someone? You ever not done what you were supposed to do and you knew you should, and because you did not do what you did, because you did not do what you knew you should do, things go off the train and somebody gets hurt? Any of those things? What happens to you? The Bible calls those things evil. So if God was to get rid of all evil, what happens to you? What happens to everyone else? What happens to him? There is a point where God does say, I'm done with evil. It's Revelation 19 and 20. He just swoops it all up and they cast it in this place called the lake of fire. It's coming. But right now, you know what God does? Peter puts it like this. 2 Peter 3, 9. God has long suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. So in the middle right now, God's just saying, hold on. I got a bunch of kids I want saved. I got a bunch of kids I want to have that, that, that need to repent. And so I'm going to be long-suffering, and I'm going to wait, because if I got rid of evil right now, I get rid of a lot of people that I'm calling and bringing into my kingdom. And I'm asking you, Edgewater, to partner with me in 
that work. And I trust Him, and here's why. I trust Him in that work because of Romans 8, 28, that I know all things work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And because I see it from Genesis 50, 20, all the way through Jesus, that at the cross, the world threw the worst evil ever at God. He absorbed it, and what did He do? He redeemed it. And the thing that caused so much sorrow becomes the source of so much joy. See, I believe this earth is serving a purpose right now. And I believe the purpose is this, that right now with joy and sorrow, with beauty and ashes, with weeping and good days, I believe all those things together, God uses them to create in me and you future kings and queens who will rule with him for eternity. And when I see it from that lens, I start saying, all right, God, okay, I trust you. I see the pattern of redemption throughout Scripture. I see it actually in my own heart, in my own life. You've done your best work, which is redemption. And so now I trust you. That's what communion is. The world slaughtered Jesus, and we were redeemed. The worst evil becomes the greatest act ever. That's communion. So I'd ask as you partake today, As you partake, maybe there's something in you where you suffered. And maybe that thing is really becoming an obstacle to you. And it's really hard for you to get beyond. And maybe you've blamed God, or maybe one of these questions, you've answered them very differently than than me. I would ask, as you partake in the elements, to just pray this simple prayer. God, I know you're able to redeem. So redeem this situation this suffering, this thing that's so hurtful for me. I've sown in tears. I've sown in tears. Can I reap joy? Pray that because that's what communion points us to. And so, Father, I thank you. You are a good God. What you do is good. That you're long-suffering. You've been long-suffering with me and my failures and my mistakes and my sinfulness. That Jesus, you took my punishment. You bore that shame. The iniquity of Matt Heverly was poured out on you 2,000 years ago. So I would no longer be under the wrath of God. Thank you. May I see your best work of redemption happening in my life in Edgewater, in Grants Pass, in Oregon in America, in Uganda, in India, in Haiti, in Mexico. Lord, May we see that great work happening and may we as a people partner with you. I pray as we partake in the elements, may we sow a good seed saying, redeem, redeem, redeem. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.